Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Mr. Darton, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Sure. My name is uh, Robert Darnton. People call me Bob. I'm a retired professor from Harvard. Um, I've taught history for a long time, uh, beginning actually in Princeton in 1968. Um, I'm especially fascinated by censorship. In fact, I wrote a book about censorship. It's called Censors at Work, How States Shaped Literature. Uh, the point is to understand censorship from inside. Uh, you know, it's too easy just to condemn censorship, uh, to see it as a kind of Manichaean struggle between good and evil or freedom and repression. Uh, and myself, uh, I despise censorship, but I think we need to understand it, not simply deplore it. And so that's really what got me involved. And in the case of uh, communist East Germany, it so happened I was on the spot. That is, uh, I'd spent the year 1989 to 1990 in uh, the Center for Advanced Study in Berlin. So uh, I was following the collapse of the wall and all of the events that before it and after it. And in the course of that, um, I got to actually meet some East German censors. Well, I had studied censorship in 18th century France, which is actually my specialty, but the possibility of meeting real live censors in the flesh and asking them how they did the job was uh, just fascinating. Uh, so uh, one thing led to another, and I spent a great deal of time trying to understand the way the censors did the job, the way censorship actually functioned in a communist society. It was fascinating, and we could discuss that more if you like, but uh, I'm also happy to talk about other forms of censorship. In my case, I especially studied the censorship of books, not newspapers, television, online, and so on. I followed that like other citizens, but my uh, actual research concerns books. So how would you like to take it from there? I'd like to ask more about the, some of the censors that you met. I mean, so these are people that were the ones that were choosing what would be censored and what would be talked about. Like I know about certain words you can't say, like especially in film, um, the production code office had like certain lines that they would have to be like, can't use this word, can't use this word, anything that would kind of have communist leanings. But as I know, I, if I'm not mistaken, even talking about censorship, and at least East Germany was a issue. You couldn't do that. It was like a taboo word. You couldn't talk about censorship. Yes, that's right. In fact, it was prohibited by the East German constitution. They had a fancy constitution which guaranteed freedom of speech and so on. Uh, but of course, they also had a very rigorous censorship. Um, and I got to see it, as I said, from the inside because I had friends who were East German writers and publishers. Uh, they knew that I was uh, fascinated with censorship of books, especially under the uh, absolutist monarchy in France in the 18th century. So one of them said to me, you know, would you like to meet some censors? 
hell yes, I said. <laughs> and <laughs> one thing led to another. And I was um, finally, this was after shortly after the fall of the wall, uh, I was actually in their office. It's at 19 Clara Zetkinstrasse, very close to the wall, but on the East German side. And I was having a discussion with uh, two of them. Did, they, did you smell sulfur at any point? Did you smell sulfur? Sorry? Did you smell sulfur at any point? <laughs> well, no, it was a friendly discussion. Um, I mean, I assured them I was not on a witch hunt. I just wanted to understand how they did their job. Now, of course, they were suspicious, uh, but they had been recommended to me, uh, or I had been recommended to them by East German authors. Uh, so they were willing to talk. It began in a little, in a somewhat awkward way because, uh, well, they'd never seen an American before. I was a strange animal right there in, in their office. They'd never set foot in West Berlin. Um, and so, as I say, it was awkward, and they began actually by saying to me, you know, you have censorship in your country. Oh, I said, yes, it's the market. Well, you know, I'd been through that argument, I, and so I said, okay, okay, but you are censors. Can you explain to me what you actually do? Uh, well, one of them, his name... Uh, uh, what was Carl uh, Friedrich Luse? Uh, I'm I'm blocking on his name. It's been uh, several years since then. Um, he poured a cup of coffee and then he looked at me and he said uh, he could summarize what censorship was in one word, and that word was planning. Literature should be planned. Like everything in a socialist system, it was a kind of social engineering. And then he reached into a drawer at, of his desk and he pulled out a thick document, which was the plan for all of East German literature in the year 1990, a year that never happened in East German literature, but every single book that was to appear was in this plan. Uh, each book had a paragraph. Uh, there was in a summary of its plot, uh, information about the author, the publisher, and that kind of thing. And I was kind of dumbfounded because there in my hands was uh, the censor's version of a whole year of literature. And he later gave it to me, and I studied it in detail. But um, he then reached in another drawer and pulled out a thinner document with a very long German title, Themen Plan Einsetzung. And that was the ideological defense of the plan that the censors had written for the Central Committee of the Communist Party. In it, they explained what they were trying to do in fashioning, engineering, one year of literature. So uh, that made their, their ideological goal explicit. And if you put these two documents together, you got a fascinating account of what was going on in their office. 
Now, you know, the, the conversation continued and uh, I asked questions such as, well, what words are taboo? I mean, you mentioned the taboo words. And they said, well, you know, we don't actually do a lot of line by line censoring because that occurs before the books even reach us in the publishing houses. But there are some words. One was um, environment. That's taboo. It's, it was taboo because East Germany was one of the most polluted places I've ever seen, especially their gas and chemical industries. Um, another word was critical. It, it shouldn't be used because that might imply that there were dissidents in Germany. And of course, they denied that dissidents existed. Or even uh, the 1930s, they would not allow that and in its place put the first half of the 20th century because they were worried readers would smell Stalinism. So, there, you know, there were specific things they avoided. But as I said, uh, they explained that most censorship took place in publishing houses. And what surprised me that authors did not turn in whole books at once the way we do, the way I've done many times, but rather they discussed with a particular editor um, the book they were writing chapter by chapter, sometimes paragraph by paragraph. So that there was a, uh, a dialogue between the editor and the author, uh, and the editor often intervened if uh, he or she saw some something problematic. And then finally, when the whole text was completed, uh, the editor, the specific editor, would write a report about the book. Um, there might be more changes required. It would be discussed within the publishing house. It would go up to the head of the publishing house, who was an apparatchik, that is a a high-level member of the Communist Party, as was the editor, and almost always the author, too. So they're all part of the same system. And then the publisher would write a final report, and it would go to the censors in the capital of, of East Berlin at uh, Clara Zetkinstrasse, the very office where I was sitting. So it, my point is that it was a complex process. But what's, what it interested me is that the participants in it believed in it. The censors were true believers. They did not at all see themselves as repressing freedom of speech, but rather building a better society. Uh, and I think that's important because it's too easy to imagine, uh, you know, people just cutting up texts in a kind of vicious manner, but for censorship to be effective, it has to enlist the belief of the people who are part of it. And uh, that was socialist doctrine. Uh, so uh, it was, to me, quite fascinating. Now, that does not mean that it was permissive. The censors insisted that they were um, sort of high-minded, they believed in quality in books. In fact, they said in, in the West, you have mostly garbage. Uh, but we are trying to advance culture. Um, however, 
they, uh, their notion of culture was quite specific, and it had to do with a party line. Uh, there is a, 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 an East German term, Parteilichkeit, which means faithfulness to the party line. And they assumed, they just accepted that they had to be faithful, but they had, you know, they had studied East German, German literature in general. Uh, they were, they had advanced degrees in literature. They knew Goethe and Schiller by heart, a lot of it. Um, they were cultivated people. And so they thought they were defending quality while at the same time building socialism. Now, all of this, of course, uh, I mean, we're now talking about the first years of 1990. Uh, the Cold War still it was just beginning to come to an end. And naturally, I discounted a lot of what they were saying. I wasn't so naive as to think that they were, uh, you know, a force for good, uh, but I wondered if I could check actually about their behavior as they described it by going to the archives. So I took uh, a, a later day, I took the subway, which you could now do from West Berlin, where I lived, to East Berlin, and I simply walked into the Communist Party headquarters near Alexanderplatz, and I said, could I Read your archives. I'm an historian. Well, the people <laughs> in the Central Committee of the Communist Party, where they kept their archives, also had never seen an American. They had no idea of what to do with me. But the East German state had collapsed. The Communist Party in East Germany had collapsed. But all of the bureaucrats uh, remained in their positions really with not much work to do, uh, waiting to see whether whether the two Germanys would be unified. And that was not clear at that point. So not knowing what to do with me, they said, okay. And I began fishing in the archives. And the archives were enormous. Um, and it was a tricky business. Uh, and I went back several times. In fact, I later became associated with this Institute for Advanced Study. And so I would travel to Germany um, regularly for the next five years. And I had lots of opportunities to do research in the archives of the party itself. And there I found what you could call a corrective to the version of censorship that I got from the mouth of the censors. I found their actual name names in several of the documents and uh, they you know at some times they purged uh, colleagues of theirs uh, they behaved very harshly occasionally uh, and you could see how they and their superiors manipulated authors i found that particularly interesting and i'd been following east german literature which um, you know had a a whole bunch of authors that were really important public figures in East Germany. Uh, one was uh, a, quite a young man then called Volker Braun, and Volker Braun, when I got his dossiers, uh, and there were a lot of them, uh, he was a problem. 
for the censors and for the the powers in general in East Germany, because he had a terrific following among young East German intellectuals and just East Germans in general. He he was kind of uh, cool, so to speak. You know, he I think he is the the, the I don't know if you know the film. Other People's Lives. It was a famous film about East Germany. And I think the main character in it was modeled after this guy, Volker Braun. In any case, the the censors and the leaders of the Communist Party were worried about his influence because he was so critical of the uh, apparatchiks. Uh, in he wrote plays and a novel, a very interesting uh, novel called the Hinze Kunze Roman, uh, which featured a top figure in the uh, among the bureaucrats, the apparatchiks of the um, East German system, uh, uh, who was traveling around in a car driven by a chauffeur, and. There's a kind of dialogue between the party official and the chauffeur, and the party official basically is using the chauffeur to chase down women, and uh, he's he's a skirt chaser. He's seducing everything that he can get his hands on, and he doesn't look very good as a servant of the people. Well, that kind of thing worried, of course, the German authorities because it looked like an attack on this on the system and so they they had to do something about this guy Volker Braun and i found the minutes of a meeting in which the minister of culture the head of ideology in the central committee of the communist party uh, uh, a kind of uh, dragon lady called ursula radwitz uh, and a third person uh, klaus hupke who was the chief of all of the censors, the three of them got together at a meeting in which they said, what are we going to do about this writer, Volker Braun? Well, the min minutes of the meetings showed that they decided to use the carrot and a stick. Uh, the stick was they would forbid newspapers to discuss him in all of East Germany. They would require him to make a sort of public confession about left-wing deviationism, you know, Trotskyism, something like that, uh, and that he would swear loyalty to the party line, this Parteilichkeit business I mentioned. But on the positive side, they um, agreed to publish a complete edition of his plays. He was very prolific um, to... Uh, permit him to read a, the West German periodical, Die Zeit. Normally, East Germans were not allowed to read West German periodicals, but Die Zeit was first rate and had a lot of information. And thirdly, to go to Cuba. Why? Well, he was, he was planning to write a play um, about um, Che Guevara. And so he could go to Cuba at their expense uh, and do research for his play and improve his suntan, have a nice vacation. So they put all of this together and Volker Brown uh, agreed. He went to Cuba 
Uh, and then he came back and wrote his play. Well, you can follow the censor's uh, attempt to control the play once he finished it. Uh, and I found that fascinating, too, because they were horrified with what he wrote. He made a hero of Che Guevara. That's okay in itself, because Che went and you know, continued the revolutionary struggle outside of Cuba uh, into uh, Colombia, where he was killed. But the, the message seemed to be that while Che was behaving in this heroic revolutionary manner, as a good communist should, uh, back in Havana, uh, the system was ossifying and that Castro, you know, wasn't doing anything much at all. So this notion of a revolution that is that has run out of steam back in Cuba, but is being exported elsewhere in Latin America, this notion looked very threatening to the censors, to everyone in the system in East Germany, and they wouldn't allow it. So Volker Brown had to rewrite, uh, especially the first scenes of his play, and to have a different ending, and so on. And I could read all of the drafts, which uh, sh sh indicated the extent to which he cooperated, collaborated uh, with the censors. Um, and finally, uh, they approved, but with hesitation, a version of the play. And it began to go into production at the Deutsches Theater in East Berlin. Uh, 13 days before opening night, uh, the ambassador from Cuba came storming into the Ministry of Culture and he said, you can't put on this play. This is a play that blackens Fidel Castro and we it's just unthinkable that such a thing should uh, appear in public. Well, what were the censors going to do then? It turned into a real sort of diplomatic event. Of course, we never knew about this in the West, but in in the in the East, in the communist world, it was important. And it went right up to Erich Honecker, who was the head of the Communist Party and the head of the state. And at the last minute, Honecker refused to let the play be performed. So that was that. The play has never been performed, but I could watch all of the mechanism of its suppression by following the dossiers in the Communist Party. So what I'm trying, I could go on and on. Maybe I'm no, talking to I, I have so many questions, but when you were looking at those drafts, were you able to notice each one maybe a little bit different, like the sudden word changes? Um, I have a friend whose name's Christopher Moran, and he had studied CIAs in their memoirs, and it's in... Richard Helms's biography, the final draft and the rough draft, there's a slight word change. It's kind of like legal speaking to me. It's one of the most fascinating things, but they have a ghostwriter. And usually this, the same name for the ghostwriter happens to be on many of these CIA officers books, which is like, if this guy's a vampire, he could make maybe do all that, but it's just the name. And one of the things is in his rough draft, which is thoughts from his head, Richard Helms writes through my time as CIA director, we had performed over thousands of covert operations. And then in the final draft of his book, it says a couple dozen. 
Now, to me, I get chills just saying that because I start going, that's a big word change. But it's like, were, were you able to notice things like that in those drafts? Like just little things where like, you can't use this word, but if you can, like I, you have, if you have writer friends, they're probably at this point knowing what the sensors are like. And they're going to be like, we have to kind of change wording this way. So it doesn't really get noticed by them. They'll kind of gloss over it, but they have certain points you have to avoid. Yes, absolutely. Of course, um, I didn't interview Volker Braun. I didn't know him. Uh, I had friends among East German writers who did know him, um, but I, I didn't have follow-up interviews. But what I did have were different drafts of the play. And there you could see the modification of phrasing just the way you've described it. Um, uh, so uh, Che Guevara uh, comes out not so heroic. He's a, bit, a little bit crazy, whereas Fidel Castro was a good, firm supporter of the revolutionary tradition. And there's no suggestion that that tradition has cooled off and ossified back in Cuba. Uh, uh, and the whole ending actually was changed. The plot was changed too. So you've got significant changes in wording and in structure that, that, that I could follow with great precision. Now, all of this just exists in the archives of the Communist Party of East Germany. And as far as I know, it's never been studied by any uh, specialist in, in German literature. But I found it fascinating because it showed the extent to which the state reached into the creative process to control it. Do you think that they were obsessed with, I guess, creating their future that they had an idea of or trying to, I guess, build their history and preserve a better history? Or do you think it was about maybe using writers as propaganda as well, too? I mean, if you're able to change the story a little bit, and if you bolster up Castro back then, then what happens if that book travels overseas to the United States and and we're getting that information and going, okay, so Castro is still a problem. I mean, they try to assassinate that man like 600 and something times. So I would have to think that it's kind of like maybe it's a little bit of everything. But when you were mentioned about the ideology and everything and them kind of believing that kind of ideological belief of the plan and everything, it makes a lot more sense because usually when you talk about censorship, everyone wants to go to – they're trying to control us. It's a deep heart government. I don't necessarily – I mean it might be a little bit of that, but I kind of go – it's way easier to get everybody on board when you start going – if these are your viewpoints and the plan fits your viewpoints, then it's really easy to be, do the job to basically squash out anything that goes against that viewpoint and your beliefs. Yeah. Well, in fact, the word propaganda actually did not have a negative connotation as it was used within the communist system. It was a good thing to do. And ideology was positive. So uh, you could say that the censors, uh, with the collaboration of authors, were um, in their own minds doing something positive by spreading the party line. Um, and then a more elevated version of that would be social engineering, constructing socialism. So the state should control literature. Uh, they believe this, and I think they believed it sincerely. However, when you look at their actions, they don't come out looking so good. Um, the censors I knew, as I said, that, you know, there were times when they, at one point they purged a fellow um, a colleague in the censorship office. Um, their boss, this fellow Klaus Höpke, uh, wrote a memo 
uh, I forget the exact date, but um, it was maybe 10 years before the fall of the wall in which uh, he discussed a proposal to publish the works of Kierkegaard in German, in East Germany. And he said, absolutely no. If we publish Kierkegaard, we'll, we'll have to publish Kafka and, and Freud and, and Nietzsche. And these are unthinkable authors that should not be permitted in East Germany. Uh, this is decadent bourgeois individualism, as he put it. And so Kierkegaard was not published in Germany. Uh, they really <laughs> excluded a lot. And aside from that um, arbitrary exclusion of what we would think is very important modernist literature, they also were brutal in the way they treated writers. Uh, that was especially true right after the war. So in the 19, late 1940s and 1950s, there was a gulag system, and writers were sent to terrible prisons. Uh, some died in prison. Uh, there were real purges. Uh, there were show trials. I mean, the, the, that was a particularly brutal time. But by the time I was in Germany, uh, so now in the 1980s, it was different. But in a way, although it was less brutal, it was more per pervasive. Because at that time, there was the Stasi, the secret police, which had developed uh, tremendous resources for keeping track of people, for spying on people, for entering into their private lives. Um, and I also went to the Stasi archives, which are spectacular because uh, you could see how they kept records of all phone conversations, all letters, all exchanges among all East Germans. It was a massive spy operation. Uh, in fact, I later found that I myself had a dossier in the East German um, Stasi archives. Because I'd been been there on an earlier visit, and they were keeping track of me. Uh, if they called me uh, at that time, I was of course much younger, a progressive young bourgeois. <laughs> and I didn't know whether I should take that as a compliment or an insult. But in any case, uh, uh, by the 1980s, okay, there was no gulag system as brutal as the one that had existed under uh, Stalin in Russia. But the effort at total control was very effective. And uh, in fact, uh, remember, I'm just talking about books, but uh, you couldn't really write, a, a, get a book published if you were not a member of the so-called author's union, uh, and to join the union, well, you didn't have to be a communist, a member of the Communist Party, but you wouldn't get far if you failed to join the party. Um, and uh, also, uh, writers were like ordinary people. They, they had certain desires. And in the archives, I found that the party members manipulated these desires. For example, uh, some... Um, writers wanted to get a new apartment, 
well, you had to get permission of the police to do that or to live in a different city. That also required police permission. They wanted to buy a car. Well, there was a long waiting line for these little tabbies that were famous in East Germany. Many people had to wait five or more years before they could buy a car. And a writer who cooperated with the system could be have his name put at the top of the list. Um, another favor that was dispensed was to get your child into a university. That was not at all automatic. Uh, and in fact, uh, oh, intellectuals might have some difficulty getting their children in, uh, admitted in universities. And finally, there was a matter of travel. Everyone wanted to travel, but of course, they weren't permitted to go outside of East Germany. You could go to Czechoslovakia, a sister socialist republic, quite easily. Uh, and in fact, it was through Prague and Czechoslovakia that the emigration from East Germany began. And that was part of the precipitation of the fall of the wall, a long, complicated story. But they especially wanted to travel to the West. And I found many letters of authors pleading to get permission to give talks in the West where they were invited. Uh, sometimes the per permissions were given, but of course, with the understanding that they wouldn't say anything too provocative. And furthermore, if they had a husband or a wife, uh, that spouse would have to remain in East Germany. Well, I could go on and on, but my point is that it was a whole system of control which pervaded people's private lives and actually was very effective. Um, a few writers like Volker Braun, but especially Christa Wolf, had large followings in the East German reading public. And Christa Wolf, I think was one of the most respected persons in all East Germany. She had great trouble with the party, but she was a convinced socialist and did not want to emigrate from Germany as so many writers did. Uh, so she made special arrangements with the censors. They were more flexible in her case. Uh, she wrote a famous book called Cassandra. Uh, and in it, uh, she, required of the censors that they would put square brackets and ellipsis dots, dot, 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 everywhere that they had cut passages from her original manuscript. Uh, and they also permitted her to publish the full manuscript in West Germany. Well, West Germans uh, took the East German edition and every time they saw a, a Pass, where a, that a passage had been cut, they typed out the cut sentences, and put them in little pieces of paper, and sent them to East German friends. And I was given a whole set of these these little pieces of paper that you could slip into your East German edition of Cassandra, and it made reading the book come alive. It became fascinating because you could see exactly what the authorities did not want to appear. And sometimes the sentences that had been cut were, you know, seemed pretty inoffensive. But when you saw them on slips of paper that you could insert into your copy, 
they looked provocative and fascinating. So you see the system, there were ways to deal with the system uh, and ways to, if you like, undermine it. But it was nonetheless something that um, that entered into people's consciousness. In fact, self-censorship was the most important element in the whole thing. Uh, there was one writer who wrote an account of his experiences uh, doing uh, detective stories. That was his specialty. Uh, and uh, Eric Lurst is his name. And he said that before he emigrated from East Germany into West Germany, uh, as he was writing a detective story, there was a little green man in his ear. Why green? I don't know. But he said, this little green man would say to me, are you sure you wanted to write that? That could get you in trouble. Jiminy Cricket. Yes. You know, maybe that was it. I hadn't thought of that. <laughs> but it's very revealing, I think, because it shows how censorship was a system that was all pervasive and that even pervaded people's consciousness. It was internalized and was all the more effective for it. Can I ask you about the carrot and the stick um, deal? I mean, that's a devil's bargain. That's really, I mean, I don't blame people for taking the bargain and, you know, going with the party line or going what needs to be said because you get all these rewards that come with it. But that's such a, I don't know. I mean, if you stick by your integrity and stick by your convictions and stuff like that, but it's similar to what I learned about Operation Mockingbird. Like a lot of these, uh, that's a USA uh, kind of same thing. It's um, covert access with military um, when it comes to media. So like Time Magazine was a big one or Life Magazine at the time was a big one. Um, and I have documents just through my research on the Kennedy assassination of like off the book meetings and all these types of things with certain covert, just military assets. You know, like, is everybody in the CIA? But you're looking at them like, what did these people get? And it's like, oh, well, if you're a reporter, you get right onto the crime scene. You get head right up to the store. You can do all this type of stuff. And you're just like, what? Like the benefits, there's no, there's, there's, there's everything to lose at this point. I've talked to CNN correspondents and Fox correspondents. And they've talked about, if you're going to write a story about an airplane thing and that your institution or your media outlet does business with that airplane place, there's no incentive for you to do that story because you might lose your career. And if you got a family, that's a problem. And I'm like, Oh, like it's so, what about like the truth, though, a, a reporting a story, journalistic integrity even hits those boundaries as well, too. And that's like that with writing, which I mean, I, I want to know your thoughts on the whole uh, devil's bargain deal. I mean, do you think that like do you blame people that take the deal or do you think you understand? But then what about the outspokenness and if something's wrong? I mean, the uh, best thing we have over here in the USA is the right to criticize things as well, too. Well, in the case of East Germany, a great many writers escaped. So um, they would not accept the, the, the bargain of the uh, stick and the carrot. Um, and uh, some very good writers like Volker Braun, um, another is Christoph Hein, uh, accepted the bargain because they believed in socialism uh, and they wanted to make it work. And they, they hated the constraints it imposed on them but they believed in the system enough so that they would accept the constraints and then bargain. So there was a process of compromise and uh, collaboration between the censors and the writers, the publishers, uh, the, the reviewers. It was everywhere. 
Um, and I think it's important to keep that in mind, the extent to which it was a complex system that involved constant collaboration. Uh, having said that, if your question really concerns uh, journalism in the in the U.S., now I used to be a reporter. I was a reporter for just a little while on the Newark Star Ledger and then on the New York Times, and I actually believe that reporters, the overwhelming majority of reporters, are serious professionals who are trying to get the story. And the way you get the story is to have informants, uh, uh, to go to the scene, to interview people, to put things together. Um, and, but I think this is done uh, with a great deal of integrity by the uh, journalists I know, and I know a lot of them. My younger brother is a, uh, now retired, but is a, uh, a very well-known uh, reporter for the New York Times. So I don't accept the idea that journalists are controlled by uh, the advertising treasures in newspapers. It may occur in some cases and not in others. Um, uh, and I don't want to be so naive as to indicate that reporters uh, are without their own values and can really be neutral, but still there is an ideal of objectivity, and that ideal matters. So I don't at all uh, believe that the operation of journalists in uh, the West, certainly in the New York Times, compares with the operations in the communist world. Uh, and there I found many instances of the state coming down hard on journalists. Um, the, the, you know, there was total state control of what appeared in the press. Uh, so, you know, you could make the argument, and maybe this is behind, lies behind your question, that commercial constraints are the in the West act as the equivalent of the thorough search censorship in the East, uh, and it's true that some publishers decide not to publish a book by perhaps an African American uh, or a, a feminist author, uh, and some of these authors have said that they were being censored because they had failed to get published. I don't accept that argument. In my view, censorship is exerted by the state, and that's a system of political control, state control, a very pervasive power, whereas other kinds of constraint, such as will this manuscript sell in, on the marketplace, I think that's something else entirely. Now, you could disagree with me, and I know that a lot of Marxist scholars would say that um, the marketplace really does exert censorship, exactly as the East German censors told me. Uh, but I don't accept that as a parallel. And in fact, there's a danger of trivializing censorship uh, by asserting that it exists uh, under all sorts of circumstances. Uh, not just the marketplace, but uh, you know, Freud tells us that we censor everything that we say. Uh, that the superego is a powerful censor that never stops. Uh, and uh, you know, there are some literary critics who 
look at um, the choice of words as uh, a censorship process. Um, so uh, you could you could say that censorship is everywhere. It's all pervasive. My view is that if you if censorship is everything, then it's nothing, and the word is cease to have any meaning. So I see that people often confuse constraints of all kinds with censorship. And if you've read, there are many accounts, but not just by Solzhenitsyn, um, in uh, The Acorn and the Oak, it's a wonderful book of his, but by other uh, writers like Kundera, who uh, had careers and then left the communist system. If you read their works about what it was to write under uh, a communist control, which was essentially Stalinistic, um, you, you see that how much suffering was involved. And so I think we trivialize the idea of censorship if we e equate that kind of oppressive uh, control with the sort of constraints exercised by the marketplace. I, I agree 100 percent. I just think especially like if you self-censoring, I do it at times because you're on a platform. YouTube has certain things you can't talk about, which is good. It's their platform. That's their they're entitled to do that. Obviously, I have to go by their rules on this. I'm 100 percent OK with that. My issue is, is that it's an open door policy um, as though they lay out the guidelines of some things you can't say. There's also like if you get something flagged, they don't tell you exactly what it was that you said. And it might just be taken out of context or it might be nothing at all if they just don't like the video. I've had some JFK stuff flagged where I've had to review it and fight for it to actually go through. Now, it could be a problem with their algorithm. I know that. But also when they look through it again, it's just a different opinion. And I've noticed even recently over the past couple of months since the JFK stuff started sparking back up again, Wikipedia has been changing and changing and changing. Where There's a couple of things I took screenshots of that just didn't even make sense about it. Um, one statement is about Lee Harvey Oswald three weeks before the assassination going to a Dallas headquarters and threatening to blow the place up. That's what it says. Then it says period. And then it goes, well – Accounts vary if he was going to blow up the headquarters or report it to higher authorities. Search it up now. It's not there. I did that a month ago when I was talking about it with like Bob Blakey from the HSCA and all these people that were there investigating into it where I was like, well, how long was that up there? And the, it's probably up there for a long time since they don't really probably check the John F. Kennedy one and refresh it all the time. But to me, it was just like, OK. So I have the screenshot of it to prove that. But if I try and show that on air, then YouTube flags it and it'll just be like content violation. I'm like, about what? It's a real thing that actually happened, but I don't know. And then I won't get an answer on that episode or anything like that. So like trying to understand how deeply connected everything was, self-censorship is an issue. Censorship in general is an issue I have a problem with. I believe people deserve the ability to share their perspective and speak, but also like learning about like DOD, the Department of Defense influencing movie scripts when I had my buddy on here who made a recent documentary, Theaters of War. Just, you know, if you're going to make a battleship movie, where do they get the equipment for that? Well, they go to someone who like you know, go to the military and the military goes, sure, you can use our battleships. And then they go, but you got to put this in your script, like just this little little adjustment. And then if the guy says no, then they go, OK, well, we're going to take our battleship. And then if you're making a movie all about battleships, you're kind of screwed. So it's like that's my issue is like the, the carrot and the stick thing. That's a that's a really like it's a devil's bargain to me because I look at it. I'm like a lot of people. Like, especially if you're making like that example of Battleship, if you're making a film that ha that needs the military's kind of help of their vehicles and their ships and everything like that, you can do CGI stuff. Sure. But 
that only goes so far. I mean, you got to do what they say and you kind of got to play the ball in their court, which is kind of like, what do I get out of this? And that's kind of life. But so, I mean, I guess the, my utopian would be like, we always just don't need to get something out of somebody to help out or do something. But to me, that's a big thing. And then like, you can even examine FBI files of Walt Disney. The beginning is so mellow and so like easy going where it's like, we're going to insert Mickey Mouse and FBI agents in cartoons. So the kids can get used to FBI agents and want to be one, be one when they grow up. I'm fine with that. That's not a big deal. But then at the ending of like the 800 page file, which is like over a couple month time period, the ending, he's sending a letter to Hoover saying, I have these people that are communists. You need to come over here and deal with them. And they're just people that are striking up labor unions that want more better rights for being a worker. Where I'm like, there it goes. There's the goalpost. It always moves and gets a little bit darker. So that's like my thing is like defining terms. Like when you say there's this relationship where we say, how deep does it go? I mean, is it, do we allow it at all? That's a real question. I mean, I think it's, it's we have yes, a lot I of follow, okay. um, And I think what you're saying is that we need vigilance because there is always a threat of the state. I mean, because you're talking about the FBI and CIA, DOD, and, so and then the and other the, agencies I don't know the acronyms for, but there's like 20 more. <laughs> exactly. Well, when the state begins interfering with your expression, uh, that's a danger. Uh, and it's not as if, you know, we should be permitted to say absolutely anything. Uh, it's the argument about, you know, not crying fire in a crowded movie theater and so on. But that argument doesn't mean that, that the threat doesn't exist. And, uh, you know, you see this uh, all the time. As uh, You gave some examples, but I was started to read Huckleberry Finn to my grandson recently. And uh, I love reading aloud to children. Um, and this is one of the, I think one of the very greatest books in American literature, but it begins with the N word. And I found I couldn't pronounce that. It, it, we just, uh, it's unacceptable today. Now, would you say that's censorship? I would say that's more of self-awareness because that word, like to me, I can't even say Arnold's last name because it includes that in there. And I've done the history of swearing with academics on here, and they always think, that's strange. You can't say that. And I'm like, it's just because it's been so stigmatized in my head as it hurts more people than it's than a word to use. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to really hurt people. That's not the purpose of that. You know, I know cursing is kind of like it's hurtful, whatever, but that's such a word with a long history. Where I wouldn't call that self-censoring when someone does that. I would call that just being aware of the implications of it. Self-censoring would be like if you have an opinion about something political, but you can't talk about it or something of that sort. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, one could have a debate about that. I, I mean, I'm with you. Um, uh, there's a, a literary critic who wrote an article saying there's no such thing as free speech, and that's a good thing, too. Uh, and he basically was giving examples like that, but it's as if any choice of word uh, involves uh, a constraint. And so um, any uh, expression actually uh, is something that uh, is censored. Um, and uh, I've tried this out on students in, in teaching about censorship and uh, ask them to give examples of that 
sort of thing. And of course, no one would use the N word, but you know, they would say, well, for example, calling or not calling a professor professor, or um, brushing your teeth at night. I mean, you know, it it can extend very far, and soon um, any kind of distinction begins to get blurred. And that's where I see the danger. I mean, I think that we need militancy uh, in order to prevent the state uh, from insinuating itself into our expression, whether it's uh, giving lectures in universities or uh, having private conversations over cups of coffee. I um I believe like a deep state, but when I say this, it'll make a lot more sense. I believe there's a really weird relationship with the capitalist system. Like we've allowed way too many things that we would that really need to be cut off from business and all this type of stuff. That's my idea of a deep state, not like a bunch of people around a pillar or anything. I always have to disclaim that because everyone looks at me like all weird. But really, it keeps me out of the political political discussion. I don't ever really side right or left, um, because I've noticed that. Whenever someone says like their political side, if they're right or if they're left, or they have any of those leanings, the conversation's gone. Nobody wants to talk to someone from the other side. We get distorted in our realities, and that's such a dangerous thing because the most powerful thing we have as people is our ability to talk to one another. I, it doesn't seem like it right now because social media puts things in little bits and all this type of stuff. And I mean propaganda too. I would blame a lot of propaganda that's been going on for a long time, whether it's small advertisements or whether it's military influence stuff, whether it's state directed, whether it's we can't say this because of this. But the divisiveness is one of the most dangerous things. Sharing opinions, whether you agree with me or not, is what we can do to start talking about words and talking about things that in our heads we really want to avoid the conversation. I noticed it with the Kennedy assassination. Now, I've read over 64,000 things of documents. I've talked to Plenty of people that are part of the Assassination Records Review Board, federal judges, people in the HSCA, all that. And whenever I talk about it, people just go and roll their eyes. We got to stop that because there is some serious things wrong. At least the HSCA came later and they proved a bunch of things the Warren Commission didn't do right. So update the history books on that basic notion. But as soon as you say that, you got to like sit down and try to explain it to people and nobody wants to have the conversation. And I'm like, look, I know it gets chalked up into conspiracy land and then people start going, this guy might be a nut job. But there's a lot of things that in history we learned about. COINTELPRO. Well, how deep did it go? Well, you turn out the they're sending letters to the Black Panther Party uh, leaders' wives and saying your husbands are sleeping around with teenage kids. That's printed in their report. Me saying a CIA heart attack gun that's in the church committee. It's a live video you can watch. It sounds conspiracy. I said it was. But you can see the footage. But if we can't get past the eye roll to hear the person out and then go look up what they're talking about and then see it for ourselves, then we just keep letting this go and go and go. I mean, the church committee, it to me, is a whitewash. It exposed a lot, but there were no ramifications. The CIA didn't get cut down in their budget. They didn't even publish their budget. And I'm like, that's the thing. It's like we need to get everybody on board to start being aware of what power the state has. And when you can do that, you can start being probably able to have conversations again with other people without you chalking out whatever they're saying out the window. Would you go so far as to say that people who have access to uh, classified information should reveal it? I've talked to people that probably have classified information that they would never reveal, mostly because they've told me on air that it hasn't been released yet, so I can't tell you about it. And so I'm just like, okay, and they won't tell me off air either. But I mean, if it was something important, I would just hope that they would. 
Um, but also if I'm in their position, what do I got to think about? Do I have a family? Do I have to worry about my life being at risk? You know, and I know that sounds crazy, but like even talking with people who have been to the National Archives and had seen the photos of Kennedy's brain because nobody knows where it is. And they'd be like, is this Kennedy's brain? It doesn't look, I don't believe this. And I still, he, they still tell me on air, I, from this day, I do not believe that was Kennedy's brain. But then I ask about Lee Harvey Oswald's interview at a medical hospital, like an insane asylum type place, which is in the files you can look up, but you click the link, there's no documents. It hasn't been released yet. And they go, I can't tell you that yet. It hasn't been released. Okay, well, we'll move on to the subject. I certainly think that uh, we have a right and even an obligation uh, to do research. Now, that doesn't mean that all state material should be instantly made available to everyone. Of course, there have to be limits, but those limits should be themselves limited. That is, after a, a certain number of years have elapsed, uh, researchers should be allowed access uh, to the information. And, and so I follow your point. I mean, there are lots of pressures, I'm sure, within the state, different agencies and so on, to um, restrict information and to keep it hidden. Uh, and that inclination on the part of the people on the inside is understandable, uh, but I think that uh, they should, you know, shouldn't go on forever. That uh, any kind of information generated by state institutions should be available to researchers within a certain time span. Agreed. They even on the CIA website they put up the MK Ultra files without even making an announcement about it. They just put them up on their website, and then a couple of reporters from like I think, I think the New York Post. And a couple other people had made articles about it. Like, this is all up there. They just threw it up there and didn't tell anybody. I was like, of course, they're not going to tell you that type. <laughs> they're not just going to be like, hey, guys, we did this. Um, but it would be really selfish of me to say to someone, you need to do it for the betterment of humankind. To put up that risky gamble of like, hey, I'm going to expose this secret information. Do what Snowden did, whether you consider him a hero or not. I, you know, that's everyone has got different perspectives. But for me, just because where I'm in my life with no kids and all this type of stuff, I go, I would. But for that person, I would never blame that person for doing so. For me, I think a really simple get, I mean, even with the Kennedy stuff, they said after 60 years now of all this waiting, they said they never had to give us the files. That's their new thing. So whatever 3,000 something they have left that they're going to keep is a big problem. But I just want them to define their terms. What do you mean by national security? Can we just if we can define it, we work in that window. You know, it doesn't have to get broad brush like communism. That doesn't sound crazy, does it? You looked at me like I might be a little bit crazy on that one. <laughs> well, uh, I can't uh, respond as to the Kennedy assassination. It's uh, something I, you know, I, I only uh, remember as a citizen and uh, that I've, I've never studied. But I certainly have studied many things um, that were buried by the state. Um, and I've been in all kinds of archives that have been uh, closed. It's fun reading years. them. It's fun reading those documents. I don't know what it is for me, but it's like a good hobby. I mean, for your work in the National Archives, or not National Archives, but the archives as well, too, looking at some of those documents. It's just, you know, like it feels like you're getting brought in onto like a moment in history that a lot of people probably wouldn't know about. 
Well, you know, I actually think that we don't know most of what happened in the past. Um, if you spent time in the archives, as I have, I've spent years and years, especially in French archives, which go on forever, um, you realize that, uh, in fact, most of the boxes that you consult have never been opened, and that most human beings have lived and died without living a trace of their existence. Uh, certainly before parish registers were kept carefully, um, people came and went, and that was that, but they were soon lost uh, in the past. So I think history is, um, you know, if you're a practicing historian who works out of archives, you appreciate how little we actually know. Uh, most people who have not had that experience think, oh, well, we've got history under control. It's all between the covers of books. Um, well, that's, that's an illusion, uh, an understandable illusion. But I think that uh, if we really want to appreciate the, the nature of the human condition, uh, we have to dig in the archives and keep digging and uh, come up with as much material as we can and to put it together as well as we can. That's an interpretive act, of course. It's We never get at the ultimate truth of anything, but I think we can do a, a, a better job than we would have done if we just accepted the standard version that appears in books. Uh, I mean, that sounds like a commercial, maybe, <laughs> for the historian's profession, but I think uh, it's crucial for historians uh, to keep uh, digging into the past and to teach it. But what worries me about this country is the lack of historical consciousness uh, and the uh, unfamiliarity of most people with the past, uh, so that we have a kind of presentist uh, orientation. And that means that we have a very limited notion of what it was to be a human, what it is now and what it was to be a human being. Uh, so the um, decline of interest in history among students is something that worries me greatly. Uh, and I, I think when you're trying to get at the bottom of the Kennedy assassin, assassination, you are doing the job of an historian, and it's a good thing. I appreciate it. I think a lot of people my generation, I know it's hard because our attention spans, it seems like everybody's attention spans a little bit, like it's hard to care about what happened last week. But I go, you can definitely interest a lot of people. I know this Fred Hampton assassination is another one. I talked about Jeffrey Haas and all these people that actually, you know, were there, met Fred Hampton and kind of based their whole life now on trying to get truth on his uh, assassination and everything. And, you know, or at least get, I, I wouldn't say truth. I would say justice for his death because there's a large amount of police issues that were going on that need to be kind of talked about. Well, why does the word truth put you off? Well, I'm trying to think if, um, because I do believe the truth and that he was murdered and it was an inside thing with O'Neill. And I think they made a movie about it as well, too. Um, but that that word, whenever you say the word truth, I'm just like, I don't know, it's 100 percent like this is 100 percent this. And I don't believe in 100 percent really anything like J. Edgar Hoover being a bad guy. I've been critical of that guy more times than I can count. But also, I got to meet the man because I'm looking at files between him and his FBI. And even though some were scared of him, there were some that really appreciated him. So they saw a side of him that a lot of people didn't see. 
And I've talked to different historians about him. So I don't know, saying anything is definite or this is 100% the answer, it would be stupid to think that. It would be really easy to say that there's a lot of things going on and this is the most accurate and this is probably the most cause. But there might be underlying factors that might be in the same boat, but they're not necessarily the same exact route, if you understand what I'm saying. I I think I understand, but um, I would say that we never have 100% knowledge of anything. That doesn't mean, though, that we can't approach the truth. Uh, so I would defend the notion of truth, but with a lowercase t, a small t, uh, as opposed to truth with a capital T, as if you've got some absolute knowledge of things. Um, you build up, I think, a, uh, a valid case through rigorous research and uh, conceptual clarity and logic um, so that you can arrive at a valid presentation of an event, uh, of an era, uh, I've just completed a book about the coming of the French Revolution, and I go. It goes from 1748 to 1789 and beyond. Uh, is this? Have I reached the absolute truth about this great historical transformation that was the French Revolution? No, I uh, not. But I think that uh, I've worked so hard at it, and I've got so much evidence that I cite uh, and that I've tried to synthesize everything I've, or almost everything I've studied in the last 50 years, that this account of the coming of the French Revolution is true. It's not an ultimate truth, but I think it's out there with supporting evidence and an argument that is made explicit, uh, and it can be challenged by other people. Uh, that, 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 struggle to arrive at truth with a small t, I think, uh, is is worthwhile and valid. Uh, and so I'm not a believer with a lot of postmodernists who say that everything is just a combination of words and words um, undermine themselves uh, so that any expression really is just part of the peculiar mentality of the person making it. Uh, I think this this kind of super relativism and skepticism is self-defeating and that we have a responsibility to uh, try to communicate uh, a, a kind of truth in as rigorous a way as we possibly can. So, uh, you know, I mean, again, I, maybe I'm sounding as though I'm giving a commercial, but I really believe in the study of history as an attempt to understand the human condition and that that kind of understanding is important. It's part of being human itself. I, 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 um, I'm going to ask you one last question, but this is more of a personal question. Are you an optimist on society? Because I find myself being more of a pessimist just because looking through the past has really made me that. Um, mostly because I don't see any change. I always see us getting right to the door, but never fully going in, um, whether it's a small win here. And there's been plenty of small wins you can look at, but the overall thing that keeps, it seems like every 10 years or 15 years, the same thing ends up happening over and over and over again in a different form, maybe more modernized, you know, censorship still obviously an issue. Um, but there's a lot of things where I start going, 
where did it go wrong? Why, why are we getting divided on things? I mean, I find myself being a pessimist through looking through the past. Well, you know, being an optimist or a pessimist might have a lot to do with your personal makeup, outlook, uh, and be highly subjective. In my case, uh, so I'm now about next week, I have my 84th birthday. So I've been around for a long time. Um, and uh, I often think when I worry about things such as the silo quality of the social media that we talk about a lot, I think back to the experience of my father. Uh, he was born in 1897, so to speak, two centuries ago. Uh, he fought in the First World War. He was uh, in the trenches for nine months, which was extraordinary for a, an American soldier. Uh, he came back, lived through the Depression, joined the New York Times, um, and was sent to the Pacific as a foreign correspondent and was killed. Well, you know, people who of his generation who faced fascism, faced the Depression, uh, faced world wars and uh, decimation, devastation of an, uh, an extraordinary extent, uh, those people, I think, uh, serve as reminders that we today have bread on the table. Uh, we've got all kinds of troubles. Uh, but uh, really, the world we live in is, uh, here in the U.S., anyhow, is um, imperfect, but it's a, a much more uh, solid order than the kind of world lived in by my father's generation. So in that respect, I think that I would call myself an optimist, that we survived the horrors of the 20th century and uh, that people uh, are, are, there's a great deal of terrible inequality in our society. But if I think back over these France I've studied in the 17th, 16th, 17th, 18th centuries, it's very clear that people eat better, they live longer, um, they have uh, richer lives uh, than they did centuries ago. So yes, I think that things have improved bad as they are. Well, I respect your optimism. I can tell you that much. You definitely gave me something right there to think about, um, especially when it comes to food and other things. We are a little bit more solid in that than especially my great-grandfather was during the Depression. So, you know, learning about his life a little bit really sparked up my interest in learning about the depression realize yeah we don't have it that bad i'm not trying to be super critical but just when it comes from a societal thing it's hard to get the whole conversational thing going with people which is my where my pessimism comes in um but i appreciate the time you gave me to talk on my show bob is there a place where people can find your links um well i i have a, a website um I can link yeah, it all in the description. Yeah, I don't really, I don't really know. Main thing would be to read some of the books I've written if they're interested in this kind of history. And I'll link your website, and I'll link um your Amazon page if you got one, and also anywhere I can find your books, I can link all those in the description so people will be able to find it and click them and be able to. Yeah, you can just books. go to Wikipedia where it's. Uh, I think there's a list of my main publications my goal is to get a wikipedia 
if they don't edit it too bad. Um, <laughs> but uh, I'll make sure I link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure talking with you, and thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank Podcast.